Hello, and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Kristen Hayes. Today, I'll be talking with Rachel Cletus, who's the Policy Director with the Climate and Energy Program at the Union of Concerned Scientists. Among her many talents, Rachel is an expert on the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, or UNFCCC, process, and has been attending international climate negotiations since 2009. By the time this podcast airs, we'll be two days into this year's negotiations in Glasgow at the meeting known as COP26, and Rachel is joining RFF as the first guest in a three-part COP-focused podcast series. Rachel is going to help set the stage for what we can expect out of the COP over the next two weeks, including issues under discussion, where progress this year is particularly critical, and how U.S. action, or lack thereof, will affect the dialogue. In this pivotal year for international climate negotiations, we're very grateful to have Rachel with us for her insights on what to look for coming out of Glasgow. Stay with us. Hi, Rachel. And welcome to Resources Radio. It's, it's great to talk with you. Hi, Kristen. Great to be here. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Well, I offered only a very, very brief introduction to your areas of expertise. So really quickly, before we talk about the COP, I'd love to hear just a little bit more about you and your background and what you've been working on these many years. Yeah, so Kristen, I'm trained as an economist. I work at the Union of Concerned Scientists with a very interdisciplinary team, and I do a fair amount of work on climate impacts, uh, resilience, as well as clean energy and what it'll take to decarbonize our economy here in the U.S., particularly the power sector in the U.S., uh, and then on the international front, uh, it's been really over a decade now of engaging with these negotiations to help achieve these global goals uh, to curtail emissions and stave off some of the worst impacts of climate change. So uh, Copenhagen in 2009 was a very sobering start to uh, my uh, participating. Uh, and then the Paris Agreement in 2015 was a high point. So definitely seen a lot of ups and downs over the years. Mm-hmm. Well, I'll be very interested to hear sort of where you fit your expectations of this cop into that scheme of things. But yeah, thank you for that, for just sharing a little bit more about your your background. And as I mentioned at the outset, um, this conversation is the first of three cop-focused podcasts that we'll be releasing over the next few weeks. There's a tremendous amount to cover. And as I was thinking about how to organize this first episode, I, I wanted to propose that we start by kind of framing the conversation based on the four keys to success at COP26 that were outlined by Patricia Espinoza, who is the UN Climate Change Executive Secretary, back in February. So this is my my framing here, and I'll just review those. Those four keys to success are, one, promises made to developing countries are kept, especially the pledge by developed nations to mobilize $100 billion in climate finance annually by 2020. Second one, governments wrap up outstanding items and negotiations to fully implement the Paris Agreement. Third, countries lower emissions and raise climate ambition, not only with regard to emission reductions, but also increasing ambition in adapting and building resilience to the impacts of climate change. So that very much ties into your expertise in the impact side. And then the last one, the last key to success, as outlined, uh, is no voice or solution is left behind through re-engaging with observers and non-party stakeholders in a unity of purpose. 
So, okay, with that long introduction, um, let's take those in turn. And the first of those, the first key to success, as identified by Patricia Espinoza, it relates to climate finance. So let me turn to you at long last. How are developed nations doing on keeping their pledge to mobilize funds at scale, I think technically by last year, uh, to support decarbonization in developing countries? So back in 2009, in Copenhagen, richer nations promised that they would jointly mobilize $100 billion per year by 2020 for developing countries to invest in both cutting their emissions and in adapting to climate change. And now over a decade later, unfortunately, they've fallen well short. And uh, we heard a clear uh, understanding of that just earlier this week when uh, there was a report released at the behest of the UK COP presidency uh, talking about uh, where climate finance stood right now. Uh, This was prepared uh, in uh, partnership with the environment ministers from Canada and Germany, Jonathan Wilkinson and Joachim Flaspers. And when they released this, two things were clear. One, that they failed to meet that threshold. And two, that it's unlikely that they will get there at the earliest by 2023. Um, And that means that we've had several years now where uh, these resources have not been flowing. And this is a top priority in Glasgow, that developed countries, richer nations step up to show how they will deliver on this $100 billion, make up the past shortfall, and really open up a conversation post-2025, how they intend to significantly ramp up uh, the finance that they are going to be providing. Because unfortunately, in the interim time, the needs have only grown. Uh, for example, African nations are now calling for $1.3 trillion in uh, financing by 2030. And that's really really because the climate crisis has gotten worse. We're seeing uh, worsening impacts like floods and droughts and uh, intensifying storms and heat waves. Uh, So the needs are really acute. I just want to mention one key thing that Joachim Flauspat said uh, when uh, the climate finance report was released earlier this week. He said, Delivering on the pledge has nothing to do with the generosity of the global north. It's about fairness and responsibility. And that's a key thing to understand. This is the responsibility of richer nations who have uh, contributed the most to heat-trapping emissions thus far. The report is disappointing also because it doesn't nudge countries towards uh, ramping up their finance for adaptation, uh, which has been lagging far behind mitigation. And there's still uncertainty about how much of it will come in loans versus grants, Uh, and how much the private sector will really step up in addition to public sector financing. Mm -hmm. Do you see any opportunity for the discussions at COP26 to actually help overcome any of the barriers that have sort of held countries back from mobilizing those additional funds? Uh, Is there there the potential for progress here, or is this really kind of something that happens outside of the COP process? Well, there's some really interesting uh, bright moments here, too. So, for example, uh, at at the U.N. General Assembly in September, President Biden committed that the U.S. would scale up its international climate finance to $11.4 billion per year by 2024. That's very welcome. It's much needed. And that can really spur greater ambition from other countries as well. We've seen uh, EU nations step forward, Canada step forward. Uh, Now we need to make up the deficit more fully. In the U.S., uh, we're also now in the near term, Congress has started an appropriations process for this year's uh, FY22 climate finance commitments. And right now, the top line number, $3.1 billion for fiscal year 22, is an encouraging sign. 
Well, that's great. Yeah, and I suppose, you know, that's definitely something to be on the lookout for is what sort of additional announcements related to to climate finance might come out over the next over the next few weeks. Um, great. Well, let me turn to the second of these keys to success, which deals with the Paris Agreement reached at COP21 back in 2015. As you noted, that was sort of a highlight in this whole process. But what are the outstanding items that governments need to wrap up in order to fully implement that agreement? What's What's still on the table? And and if you could tell us you know, just a little bit about which of those are close to resolution, which are still quite far, and maybe if you do feel like speculating on which ones you think are most likely to sort of get across the finish line this year, I'd love to hear that too. Sure. So one piece of overdue homework is uh, deciding on the rule book for implementing the Paris Agreement. The Paris Agreement has gone into force, but uh, we still don't have a complete rule book to implement it. And there are a few outstanding items here. Chief among them, a decision on carbon markets uh, in uh, so-called Article 6 of the agreement. And what we're looking for is some really robust provisions here that actually uh, drive emissions down, not simply offsets, not simply moving the chairs around on the deck. Uh, This is absolutely a moment where we have no leeway in the atmosphere. All of the science is telling us we need sharp cuts in emission reductions, a sharp turn away from fossil fuels. So we don't want hot air, we don't want offsets and credits that aren't true emission reductions. So sound rules for the carbon markets. The second piece is uh, developing what's called common timeframes for nations' emission reduction pledges. Right now, nations are voluntarily putting down whatever year they want as a target year for emissions reductions. And that creates a lot of uncertainty and also a lot of disparity in understanding who is doing what. And what we need to see now is a common five-year Uh, time period for these emission reduction pledges. So, for example, going forward, we need to hear what nations are going to do by 2025, by 2030, and so on in five-year increments. Um, And so that's a piece that's still uh, under discussion. And then there are uh, various rules around transparency, which is really about how we get greater understanding of the commitments, the details of the commitments that countries are making. Right. And are some of those sort of closer to the finish line than others? I think the transparency framework, there is a lot of uh, shared agreement around what it needs to include, that the obligations uh, need to be both in terms of the emissions reductions pledges, but also increasingly an understanding that they need to extend to climate finance pledges as well. So I think we have a good chance there. Uh, I think uh, the common frameworks discussion. Uh, There are some edgy points between different countries, including China and the US. And I think uh, this one is, is a question mark. Article 6, the carbon markets, we've come so close in previous COPs. Uh, and at the last COP in uh, Madrid, it was Brazil uh, asking for a lot of leeway and hot air around uh, credits related to forest carbon that led to a breakdown of uh, the conversation there. So this one, again, it's a big toss up. There's a lot of commitment to getting it done, but we still have bad actors in the mix who can slow things down. Hmm. Okay. And so will negotiations... Um my understanding is that there are interim meetings between these annual COP meetings. And so these these issues are under discussion year round. So presumably there has been progress in between Madrid and now, or in many ways, are they kind of picking up where you left off in Madrid, as you just mentioned, you know, kind of, was that, was that the, the end spot from which these negotiations will begin? 
Indeed, there have been conversations in the interim. Unfortunately, in the last couple of years, they've been seriously affected by the COVID pandemic, and a lot of this has been virtual, and that has led to uh, really a, a very slow and difficult trajectory in the interim. So we're not as far along as we would have liked to be going into COP, but I think uh, there is a lot of energy now since COP has not happened for the last couple of years to make this one count. One other piece that we really hope we will hear more about at this uh, COP is a meaningful uh, attempt to address the issue of loss and damage. Uh, now, for folks who are not familiar with this term, loss and damage in the context of the United Nations uh, negotiations refers to that part of climate impacts that cannot be addressed through mitigation or adaptation measures. Essentially, uh, impacts that are so extreme, such as loss of land due to sea level rise, uh, that there's simply no way to adapt one's way out of it. And this is already affecting many, many climate vulnerable countries. Unfortunately, uh, negotiations uh, on this, even though it's mentioned in the Paris Agreement, uh, has been there's a Warsaw mechanism uh, for loss and damage that was decided in the subsequent COP. We have not seen progress, and it has been blocked by richer countries, including the United States, uh, who have tended to be fearful that this will be a conversation about reparations. The reality is these impacts are here and now. They're affecting people. It's going to get even worse going forward, and we have to get our arms around this very vexing issue. And that means starting now in this COP to make sure that we have additional finance available for loss and damage and start to open up a conversation about a human rights-centered framework to address these very real needs. Next year, the COP will be in Africa. Uh, Africa is one of those places that has seen really cruel and harsh, devastating impacts of climate change. There are over a million people in Madagascar right now who are facing a climate-caused famine of food insecurity. And we really need to be addressing this within the United Nations negotiations. So we hope that the U.S. and other nations will take a different posture uh, at COP in uh, Glasgow to begin these very necessary negotiations on loss and damage. Mm -hmm. And that's above and beyond the $100 billion that we were talking about in our previous conversation on climate finance. Is that right? That the idea here is that that $100 billion pledge was focused on mitigation and adaptation, but this is actually the needs have become clearer to the point where there are expectations of needs above and beyond that $100 billion. Is that right? Absolutely. This is above and beyond what had been pledged before. And even the $100 billion, when we get past 2025, we really need to be talking about trillions of dollars. That's what's going to be needed uh, to make a transition to low-carbon energy around the world and to address these very serious climate impacts. Hmm. Yeah, I can see that that's a very tall task, but it's... it's... It sounds like a lot. It, it it might sound like a lot, but just bear in mind that we are subsidizing fossil fuels to the tune of $5.9 trillion. So this is the challenge. We are doubling down on fossil fuel production. We're continuing to subsidize fossil fuels. And then we're going cheap when it comes to dealing with the consequences of that. We really need to rebalance our priorities as a global community, and policymakers need to take the lead on that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, let me let me move on to the third of these keys to success. And um, just to remind our listeners, it it starts by saying countries both lower emissions and raise climate ambition. So not only with regard to emissions reductions, 
but adapting and building resilience. So I, I guess I interpret that item, at least as it was phrased, as both retrospective, where countries have lowered emissions over time, and prospective, where they continue to lower emissions and, most importantly, they sort of raise their ambition to continue the trends um, related to emissions reductions and also adaptation and resilience. So you know, and, and part of this too is about articulating concrete plans that will actually make those emissions reductions and adaptations measures possible in the years ahead. So can you maybe, I, I guess I want to focus on that forward-looking piece, and what can you tell us about the levels of ambition that have been demonstrated in any newly announced nationally determined contributions? And are there other particular announcements that you are on the lookout for that you would encourage our listeners to be on the lookout for over the course of the COP? Yeah, absolutely. So going into this COP, the UNFCCC, as it always does, has put out a, a report talking about how far our countries' current emission reduction pledges, the so-called nationally determined contributions, take us. And unfortunately, we're still far off track from where we need to be in terms of what the science is telling us is needed by 2030. So remember, the IPCC has pointed to the need to cut global emissions on the order of 45 to 50% below 2010 levels by 2030. So essentially halving emissions by 2030. And that's what would be needed to reach the Paris Agreement goals uh, to stay within 1.5C. Right now, we're on track for 2.8C or more uh, with current pledges. And those current pledges include the U.S.'s NDC, which is 50 to 52% below 2005 levels by 2030. And here comes the problem. The U.S. pledge is a very important signal to the global community that we're serious, we're back in but we still don't have the policies to deliver on it. We're fighting for the Build Back Better Act here in the U.S., which has some very important climate provisions. If we can secure them, there would be a significant down payment on that U.S. NDC. We can make up the rest through a combination of regulations uh, with administrative actions, but those details need to be communicated clearly so there's credibility uh, behind the U.S. NDC. We haven't heard yet from China on its 2030 uh, pledge. We know that if we're going to have a fighting chance of meeting our uh, global climate goals, China, as one of the world's largest emitters, has to sharply curtail its emissions, get off coal. And by 2030, we mean not uh, you know, some distant, aspirational, uh, mid-century net zero goal. This is a very consequential decade, and we need to see countries like China, like uh, Brazil, Australia, and others really make clear that they intend to do more by 2030. Mm -hmm. Forgive me if I'm not quite sure how to ask this question, but I, I guess I'm wondering, just as a follow-up to that, how can countries, aside from demonstrating their own levels of ambition and sort of building this um, community of understanding of sort of collective responsibility, but are there other ways in which the COP process encourages increased levels of ambition? I feel like that's such a critical term and, and people talk a lot in this context about, yes, we really need to be raising ambition, but how do you actually do that in practice? I think what how it works in practice is really ambition begets ambition. So the U.S. has a crucial role to play here. Having been on the sidelines for the last four years under the previous administration, it's enormous that we're back at the table and back with good intention. Uh, the Biden administration is, is uh, shown that it's seriously committed. 
And that can create an atmosphere in which other nations are more willing to step up as well. Uh, and in this COP, going into this COP, having a serious climate finance pledge and an emissions reduction pledge from the U.S. is very good. Now, we need, obviously, more more details, more concrete action uh, from the U.S., but it's already created a, a very favorable climate of diplomacy between multiple countries, the U.K., the EU, etc. I think the big question mark here is, are we going to see additional pledges from countries like China and India? Is the U.S. going to do more on climate finance and loss and damage? And do we have the trust and the credibility to actually break through to higher levels of ambition overall? The IEA released a report earlier this month where they made clear that we can still, we still do have choices that are within our control to meet our Paris Agreement goals, but that window is narrowing quickly. So we don't have time to waste on incremental progress, uh, empty promises of faraway goals. Uh, we really need to see real action from countries now. Well, and I should note, you know, we've been talking a little bit about the U.S. and, and how much U.S. climate policy action is likely to drive or at least be a key component of overall success at the COP. I should note that you and I were recording this episode on uh, October 26th, so just a few days before the deadline imposed by congressional leadership to move on reconciliation, which um, which has become you know a, a key vehicle along with the infrastructure potential infrastructure bill, which have become really key vehicles for potential climate policy here in the U.S. So there's still a lot of unknowns. The landscape may change dramatically between when we're recording and when we're airing. But I guess I'm going to ask the negative version of this question for just a second. But what happens if the U.S. can't get those ambitious plans in place by the time negotiations are wrapping up? What if those policy specifics still aren't hammered out? Well, I think what will be crucial is to have the framework pretty clearly articulated. Obviously, our congressional process, our political process, uh, takes a little while for a bill to move towards final passage. But what people need to hear is that what has survived in the framework that has been agreed on includes some very important climate provisions. For example, the clean energy tax credits, they will be huge in terms of driving uh, clean energy on our grid, uh, encouraging greater electrification of our transportation sector. Uh, so those kinds of provisions, we need to hear that they've survived and they've stayed strong uh, in this bill. The administration does have other tools at its disposal too, and it should make it clear that they will be implementing robust uh, regulations uh, across the economy, vehicles, the power sector, industry, on methane emissions as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, and you did mention too some of the kind of main discussion partners, I might even use the term allies, um, who have been working together on climate negotiations this year, uh, the US, the UK, the EU. Um, what about China? I'd like to talk about China for just another minute, as you've already emphasized the importance of, of their pledges and their leadership in this space. Do you think the US and China can sort of get back to the spirit of cooperation on climate that really made the Paris Agreement possible? I think there's no other choice if we are going to meet our global climate goals. We do have to get to a point where the U.S. and China, the world's biggest emitters, 
do work together in the spirit of cooperation and mutual respect uh, to take actions to lower emissions. That means acting within their domestic borders, of course, but also recognizing that we have to roll back uh, global fossil fuel finance. China has already pledged that it will stop funding coal overseas. Uh, the U.S. has said the Biden administration is committed to cutting back on fossil fuel investments abroad. Uh, steps like this could be very, very important. And just to be clear, this is in the interest of both our countries, our domestic interests, because both countries are facing tremendous climate impacts. China saw some terrible flooding earlier this year. The U.S., as of early October, has already experienced $18 billion plus extreme weather and climate-related disasters, everything from wildfires to uh, hurricanes to floods and drought and heat waves. So this is in our own self-interest. The other piece is both countries are leaders in clean energy. Uh, there's a tremendous economic opportunity here in terms of building huge renewable energy, electric vehicle, uh, domestic supply chains to create jobs and cut pollution from fossil fuels. That pollution from fossil fuels has also imposed a huge health burden in China, as well as here in the U.S., where it falls uh, primarily on black, brown, indigenous communities and low-income communities. So again, the reason to do this is obviously in the spirit of global cooperation, but the reason to do it is also because it's in the best interests of our own countries. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's certainly something that I personally will be um, watching for a little bit out of the COP is whether there are kind of specific commitments, either policy-related more likely technology related that might come out of um, joint US-China discussions. So very interesting to hear a little bit more about that. The other big piece is what will we hear anything from India about its 2030 NDC? India has a very um, ambitious commitment to uh, have 450 gigawatts of uh, renewable energy online by 2030. And if climate finance is forthcoming, they can really deliver on that goal. They've made it clear that they need climate finance to deliver on that goal. The U.S. has been engaged in direct conversations with India around that. If that really does come online, it will push a lot of coal off the system in India, and that would be tremendous in terms of bending the emissions curve. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Great. Well, I don't want to lose track of the fourth, uh, the very last of these four keys to success, which which deals with inclusion. So as we were winding towards the end of our conversation, I want to ask you a little bit about that. Um, so what should we look for or expect, ideally, in terms of incorporating diverse voices, diverse solutions into discussions at COP26? Do you have any sense of what stakeholder engagement has sort of looked like in the run-up to the COP? And, and what role can those diverse voices really play in influencing the negotiations at this point? Well, this has been a very fraught uh, COP in terms of delivering on the in-person aspect of it. Uh, you know, several civil society groups, including the Union of Concerned Scientists, called for postponement of this COP because of public health concerns and the really gross global vaccine inequity situation. Nevertheless, the COP is going ahead in person, and what we are hearing from civil society groups around the world is it is very hard for them to travel to Glasgow. Many are choosing to stay away, and if they're coming, they're coming uh, after overcoming tremendous hurdles. So this COP is already set up to be 
uh, inequitable in terms of participation from the global south. And that's kind of a reflection more broadly of where we are as a global community, where uh, richer nations, again, on uh, the vaccine front, have not lived up to their responsibilities. Uh, and I think uh, in terms of inclusivity, you know, obviously the COP presidency has been trying to reach out to uh, different sectors across the world. But just this basic fact that arriving in Glasgow, participating in person is so complicated uh, for representatives from the global south just sets us up for a situation where there's a real risk of an inequitable outcome. And are they taking any steps to sort of mitigate those concerns? Have they transitioned to kind of a hybrid COP in a way that would allow at least some participation? Um, I do know that the, you know, the COP organizers have offered vaccines to participants who are able to come. But as you point out, there are so many hurdles in between um, leaving one's country and arriving in Glasgow that simply being able to get a vaccine doesn't cover many of the challenges, at least. Yeah, and unfortunately, the vaccine rollout was way too slow and happened too late for many. And uh, we're already hearing, for example, from some Pacific Island participants that they just can't leave uh, their homes. And we also have to think about what it means to actually gather in person and then come back to your home country. Many are returning to countries where the vaccine uh, is not much available. So that means the risk of bringing something back when you come home is also high. So the COP presidency has certainly tried, but it has been too little, too late. Uh, in terms of a virtual participation, the details are not quite clear yet. We we know that some uh, of the sessions will be broadcast online, but that again comes down to do you have good internet access where you are? Um, so there are a lot of reasons why it's not going to be perfect. But then I would say the bar is even higher for richer countries to make it worthwhile then having undertaken this extraordinary effort in the midst of an ongoing global pandemic. Let's make it worth it, please. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really good point. Okay, well, Rachel, this has been so illuminating and very much appreciated. Um, I want to close with kind of one substantive question before our regular closing feature, but um, just, you know, as, as someone who's been following these uh, negotiations for many years and understands the stakes of this one, I'd like to ask for your opinion. What what does a successful cop look like to you? What, you know, how, where would we land in two weeks where you would say, we got the job done? Well, success uh, has always meant, is this in line with what the science shows is necessary? And we've seen a steady stream of sobering scientific reports this year from the IPCC, from the UN, from the IEA. So it's pretty clear what's necessary. The other piece is this is the United Nations, and this is the one venue where uh, the outcome needs to be equitable as well. So will it answer to the needs of the most vulnerable, the climate vulnerable around the world? Those, for me, are the two metrics of success uh, for a COP, this COP and every COP. Fantastic. Well, fingers crossed. I know that's a paltry way of uh, indicating the stakes here, but certainly um, we're all going to be watching with with great interest to see what's accomplished over the next over the next two weeks. And thank you again. Thank you so much for for laying this groundwork and for really helping our listeners kind of be grounded in what to look for over the course of this very important COP. Thank you so much for having me. It's really been a pleasure. (laughs) Great. So let's close with our regular feature, Top of the Stack. And I'd love to ask you, Rachel, if you had any good content that you wanted to recommend to our listeners. It could be on this topic. It could be more broad. It can be any sort of media format. But let me ask, what's on the top of your stack? 
Yeah, so I've been listening to a podcast called On Being, and uh, the latest uh, edition of it that I heard was one featuring Catherine Hayhoe, who's a climate scientist uh, and speaks so beautifully and humanely about the human connections with the climate crisis. Um, I've also been reading a collection of writings uh, called All We Can Save, uh, Truths, Courage, and Solutions for the Climate Crisis. And I guess the, the common theme here for me is, as I've been doing this work over a couple of decades now, uh, the need for personal resilience, the need to think about hope, even in moments of darkness, is is very, very um, important, I think, for the climate movement, for me personally. And so I look for spaces uh, to keep me going. It's, it's a marathon, not a sprint. And uh, for many of us who have young people in our lives, we know what's at stake. Um, I have two young children who are teenagers, and I think a lot about the future that we're going to be leaving them. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you for those recommendations. And it is always very important to find opportunities for hope in these um, in these weighty discussions, that's for sure. So thank you so much. And it's been great to talk with you. Thank you, Kristen. It's been great to be here. Thank you. You've been listening to Resources Radio. Learn how to support resources for the future at rff.org support. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. Resources Radio is a podcast from Resources for the Future. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson with music by Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.